together. This is from Psalms 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have claimed and quieted my, calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. Amen. Thanks, Barbara. You can have a seat. Well, if you're just joining us this summer, we're doing a Sunday series called Songs to Carry On. And I appreciated that first song this morning, Brian. I felt like it helped me carry on at uh, 10 a.m. Without coffee, that would help me carry on. It was beautiful. And we're calling it Songs to Carry On because if you've ever driven on a long road trip before, you know just how important music is. Right? If you're getting from one place to another, especially if there are people with you in the car or if there's no one with you in the car, podcasts only go so far. you got to have some music on there. you got to do it because if you're going to get there in one piece, especially at the end of your journey, you need some music, uh, an album or a, a great playlist of travel songs to help you get there to your destination. That's why we're spending the summer going through these Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent were an ancient version uh, of sung prayers that were, help, that they were designed to help people struggling through transitions to get from one place to another place that was different. And these psalms were, were Israel's best of playlist for a journey they would take three times a year from wherever they lived to Jerusalem. And they were called Songs of Ascent because Jerusalem was sort of the, the highest city in, the, in Palestine, so they would always go upward. You ascended to them. So I was struggling this morning to come up with a title for this very brief psalm until I uh, looked at something around our house. Outside our front door, we and our guests get to, to walk by a lovely, large bush of red and yellow roses right outside our front door. And every year, these bushes need pruning. Which is always, by the way, a very sad sight to see when they go through significant pruning. Uh, basically, it, gets, it looks like this ragged, mutilated, sort of sad tree thing, right? Uh, it just looks sad. The pruning for us takes place at the beginning of each year, usually January or February, because that's when hibernation takes place. And with hibernation, it means all of the, plats, uh, sorry, all the plant sap, its nutrients, tend to stay towards the middle, uh, closer to the roots as possible. They don't quite, quite go out as far. I actually know someone who uh, built a trellis for their roses. You know what a trellis is? Like a, like a thatched, like a cross diagonal thatched fence you put up and you let plants grow all along it. And so what they did is they didn't prune their rose bush. They wanted to let it kind of grow out everywhere, right? So it would look even more beautiful, more pretty, all that. Anticipating more roses than ever, they were disappointed. All they got were these like tiny, scrawny blossoms because it wasn't pruned. The branches had gotten too far from the roots, and the nutrients, they, they can't, you can't get out that far. And so they start to get smaller, even die on the outside. So this psalm of pruning describes something counterintuitive, uh, like mutilating, like, like, like cutting back a rose bush when its blossom is most full. 
When our, when our lives carry a, a ton of positive mojo, a, a big momentum finally going our way, the blossoms at its most full, sometimes that is the best time. That is the best time for maintenance. Which sounds crazy, right? Why, when things are going so well, would you cut something back, right? This is when I'm like, I'm doing great. Nothing, everything's going my way. Why would I focus on something like pruning? Cutting back something that's working so well. You got to contrast this to last week when the psalmist last week said, up from, Hey, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Here's a guy who knows he's in trouble. He reaches out to God in his weakness, right? Like, God, I need help. I know I need redemption. But what about the guy or, or, or lady for whom everything is coming up roses? <laughs> I had to say that, by the way. It's in my contract that I have to say so many puns per year in my sermons, so you really can't blame me for that. I'm, I'm, I'm almost there. <laughs> All right, so that person, everything's coming up roses in your life. That person is almost told, is often told, man, you must be doing something well. You must be living right for all these things, good things to be happening in your life. And the rose bush teaches us, actually, it's then when we're most in danger of straying far from our roots. That's when we're most in danger. Interesting. This psalm is written by the former and most beloved king of God's people, a man named David. And all the commentators agree this is a retrospective given sort of from the other side of victory, from the other side of having overcome something in his life. And David doesn't come out and talk about his blind spots or how he got caught up in his successes, but we can hear it, right? We, we, we can read it in retrospect of him coming out the other side and saying, hey, I've, I've learned as a result of some of those blind spots. He's describing how he allowed his branches, his reign, his success, his very self to stray from the roots of God. But he learned something. He learned to do the hard work of pruning. He learned to do the hard work of cutting back, of pruning in his life. So in this psalm, David shares his success story of pruning in his life. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. It's not the most fun topic to talk about on Sunday morning, but hey, that's what God's Word gave us today, all right? We're going to talk about pruning. Last week, he got redemption. This week, pruning. In verse 1, we'll start there. David shares moving away from the unruly ambition of his life towards humility. The phrase translated here, he says, hey, my heart is no longer, my heart is not lifted up. It's a phrase that's used only two other times in the Old Testament without the word not. In both cases, 2 Chronicles 32, Ezekiel 28, it's used by kings of tiny nations who've experienced success beyond what's normal for a country of their size. They received adoration from people, uh, and they got fixated on doing more, on achieving more. And in both cases, God rebukes them saying, hey, for the pride of his heart. So the right translation probably for this is something like the pride of his heart. My heart is no longer prideful. Now, like these other men, David starts to occupy himself with what he can accomplish from his seat of power. The phrase, uh, occupy myself with things. I no longer occupy myself with things too, too big for me. can be translated accomplishments. I no longer occupy myself with accomplishments. David's predecessor, Saul, King Saul had the kingdom essentially given to him by the prophet Samuel. David's successor, 
His son Solomon is given the kingdom by his mom and dad. But David, man, that guy had to work to become king. He waited a very long time in exile to become king. In fact, he waited 22 years in total between the time he was told he was going to be king to the time he actually ascended to the throne. Hey, by the way, you're going to be king. Great. When? 22 years from now. What? (laughs) He wasn't told 22 years, but that's how long he waited. And even when his predecessor died, there rose up another rival to him that half the country supported, even when he ascended to the throne. But he made it through. And when you make it through a gauntlet in life and you come out on top, man, you've been tested. You know what it's like to persuade people, to welcome them, to train them. You taste success. You get all that, your ambition can start to run wild, right? If I can do that, I can do just about anything. And I have to confess that while I've tasted that kind of feeling once or twice, unruly ambition is not my natural bent. It is for a lot of people. I was listening to a pastor recently who was talking about his church, a goal for their church being to plant a church in every nation in the world. Their church to plant another church in every nation in the world. I heard that and it blew my mind. Like, I don't have that kind of ambition deep-rooted within me. My friend Ron Hunt, you may know Ron. Ron uh, just retired. He's a good friend of mine. I'm grateful for him. Just retired from New Life Church just up the road. Uh, having started there, uh, having actually started here at PCC, planted New Life. He'd been there for 25 years. Ron has shared with me that God called him all the way back then to not only plant a church here in Petaluma, but to be the pastor of the entire city. He said, God put that on my heart, the pastor of the entire city. He said, and he's told me that story not once, not twice, but three times. So I know it's, he's always encouraging me to think, to dream, to pray bigger. And that's helped. So on a retreat to the woods this past winter, I sense God saying to me, just, just, just the one, this, this little phrase he put on my heart, which was 50 dinner tables. You're like, Ryan, well, what does that mean, 50 dinner tables? Well, through our fams, we have, this thing, we have these missional families, which are these teams of, of three to five people in the church who are trying to invite people from their neighborhoods or social circles around dinner tables to break bread, to share life, to, 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 to talk, you know, to do dishes together and to talk about our jobs together and talk about kids together and just do life together. And right now we have three missional families doing this. And God said to me, 50 dinner tables at the same time. That is an ambitious dream that God put on my heart. And I don't share it much with you guys. And sometimes I don't share it because of fear, right? What if this doesn't happen? And that's on me. Other times, though, I don't share it because in the words of David, what he says here, it's, it's too great and too marvelous for me, right? He says that in the psalm. That's the kind of thing he's getting at. Yet there was a time in my life, because of ambition, I would have pushed it, I would have pushed it, I would have pushed it, you would have heard from me about it every week, and I would have talked to people who were doing it, all that stuff. David gets to the point where he knows God may accomplish some outlandish, bigger than he ever thought dreams through him, but he no longer occupies himself with it. He never worries about it. He no longer gets fixated on what he can't accomplish on his own. In verse 2, David shares how he has weaned himself from a kind of infantile dependency towards contentment. Read that again with me in verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child 
is my soul within me? Now, what does that mean? Let me slow down for those of us who are men here and don't understand what weaned means. Um, <laughs> weaning is when a child is, is broken of her dependence on her mother's milk. All right, and so, so she can take to solid foods. And that's what David's describing here, right? That sort of process. It's usually accompanied by resistance from the child. Some of you who are young moms out there know what this, or, or, or moms in general, you, you remember what this means. It's usually accompanied by tears, hot tears, and wailing, and resistance from the child, but it's necessary, right? If the kid's going to mature, going to take the solid foods, otherwise, you got a problem. David is saying early on, essentially, I used to depend on love, depend on all, all the, the tangible stuff God gave me, his felt presence, the showering of his blessings on me that I sort of, I, I loved. I ate that stuff up, right? It was an infantile kind of dependence, but now I can rest with God. Like I can be there with him because he knows what I need, and sometimes that's nothing, and I'm okay with that. I'm learning to love God for his sake, not for the things he can give me. One of the wisest things I've ever read is in, a, um, is in the, the classic book, Knowing God, written by a guy named J.I. Packer. Towards the end of this book, he has this wonderful chapter called uh, These Inward Trials, in which he explains how as a new believer, God treats you like a mother with her newborn child. That's his words, by the way. He, he gives you these, these blessings to sort of, sort of stick with him, like great emotional joy. He gives you these striking providences when God sort of stitches circumstances together to work for your good. He gives you these remarkable answers to prayer. He gives you immediate fruitfulness when you share the good news about Jesus with others in your life because you're excited about it. All these things, good things, are kind of happening to you. But if we stayed there and only got these felt blessings from God, God knows we would never learn to stand on our own and be able to mature and really trust him for his sake. So what does he do? He gives us hard things, and he starts to ask us to do hard things. So we'll learn to love him, not just for all the things he gives us, but to love him for him. That makes it to love him for his sake, not just for what he gives us. It's a bit like the story of Job. Isn't it? If you're familiar with the Old Testament story of Job, Satan basically says to God, okay, look at this guy Job. Job's love for you is because of all the blessings you've given him. All the good, tangible things you've given in his life, and there were many in his life. He loves you for all the tangible blessings and gifts you give him. You take that away, there's going to be nothing left. So through hard circumstances and doing hard things, God helps Job want God alone, not just the things God can give him. And Job's contentment, as you read this, I just read uh, Job last month uh, through, my, through my morning devotional times, and you realize Job's contentment, his heart's desire, just becomes just to have a meeting with God. That's all he wants anymore out of life, to be with God, to meet with him, God himself. So that's what David learns, too. I've learned to just want God, like a baby learns eventually, to just want to be in his, his mother's presence, not for what his mother can give him. Finally, David's final call to action is here in verse 3. He says, okay, guys, that's what I've learned. Now put your hope in God now and forevermore. Not in what you can achieve, not in the blessings he can give you, but put your hope in the person of God and God himself. The most helpful verse for me in the whole Bible in my life is, is Proverbs 13, 12, which says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. 
hope deferred, putting hope, for example, in what David says here, what I can achieve, putting hope in the, in the blessings God can give me, his felt presence, right, his putting thing, working things for my good, all this. If I put my hope in those things, ultimately those things will fail me. But when I hope in the person of God, God himself, knowing him, enjoying him, trusting in what he can provide, those are the roots. That's getting back to the tree of life, right, with which David is content. And that's his testimony. Now, how many of you enjoy hearing an inspiring testimony, a story of someone's transformation? How many of you guys enjoy hearing that, right? And, and all of us would probably say we would. But some of us, when we hear someone get up or we hear someone share their story of how their life has changed and the sort of thing, some of us get secretly frustrated. We're left secretly frustrated. Years ago, my wife Katie went through a season of following the stories of a missionary in Africa and one in India, both involved the sacrifice of their time, uh, their talents, their worldly opportunities to serve children, to foster uh, and adopt kids. And in one case, a ch a children who, who they, the, the person knew, this woman knew, weren't going to live very long. And as a result, these women, their, their love for others and their love for God was, was totally transformed. They were on fire for God. And for Katie, these stories really served her to bolster her trust in God, to warn off, ward off sort of a cynicism in her life. For me, well, I enjoyed hearing them. The more I heard about them, the more I grew quietly frustrated. I thought to myself, okay, their lives are transformed. Now, they love God more, they love others more. Like, how do I do that? Yes, that's great, but how do I do that? Do I got to move to India? Do I got to move to Africa? Do I have to start adopting, fostering children? Like, what has to happen for me to get that in my life? That's what I found myself asking in response to David's story. It's a great story. David, you've come a long way. Yes, but how? Yes, but how? Uh, speaking of uh, retired pastors, another uh, well-known pastor retired this year, a man named uh, Rick Warren. You may know he was pastor of Saddleback Church for many decades down in Southern California. Authored uh, these books called A Purpose-Driven Life. Uh, purpose-driven church, purpose-driven pastor, anything purpose-driven, Rick wrote about it. I'll tell you that. Uh, years, so years ago, I was listening to Rick talk about preaching, just for some help, we can get some tips and stuff. He grew up in a Baptist church, and he went to a service, two services on a Sunday and a service every Wednesday, and he was a pretty attentive kid. He was pretty studious. So he would write down in his notes, or in the margins of his Bible, he'd be listening along to the preacher, and he would always write, yes, but how? Yes, but how? He was astonished at the preacher how few times when the preacher preached that he addressed the question through his sermon, how? Like, how do I live this out? How do I do this? How do I respond to what God's word is saying to me? Well, I walked away from this psalm a little bit astonished at David. He tells us a story of transformation and concludes, hey, everyone, put your hope in God. <laughs> Great. Yes, but how? Yes, but how? Well, David doesn't tell us in the psalm, but I do think he gives us a hint through his life. So I spent a good deal of this week going back, looking through 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, 1st, 2nd Kings, looking at David's life. And if you think about it, consider David's life before he became king. There were two pathways in particular that led him to be close to God, that led him back to the roots, right? The roots. Over and over again, we hear David that he spent lots of time alone, lots of time alone in these, these beautiful landscapes herding sheep, 
where he would talk to God, he would consider God in silence, he would, he would think on the things of God, he, he would contemplate who God is. And from a pa- place of sort of patient contemplation, he would write psalms. He would write tons of psalms. Most of the psalms we have are from David. He also got all these chances to take down evil King Saul. King Saul had become sort of tormented and did everything he can to assassinate people, including David. And he had all these chances where he would be alone with, with Saul. It happened at least a couple, two or three times. He was alone with Saul, could have killed him. And each time he told his men, no, let's wait. That's what he learned. He learned to wait on God, contemplate God, a man of patience. The other contribution to his psalms was a love for playing music, for playing the lyre. The lyre was like a, a U-shaped string instrument. Uh, it was this U-shaped string instrument. It was like a combination between a harp and a guitar, all right? None of you guys are probably out there playing a lyre anymore. I get that. But if you can think of a harp and a guitar together, it was something like that. So he loved playing this. His predecessor, Saul, was troubled. One of his, Saul's servants recommends David to come in and play music for him. And he says David is, quote, skillful in playing the lyre. And David is known as, a, quote, a man of good presence. Why? Because he draws closer to God through song and through, through beauty. David is what I would call also a sensate. Sights, sounds, smells are something that drew him near to God to experience his pleasure. So he's a man of contemplation, patient, quiet time with God. He's, he's a person of, sense, of, of the senses that draw, draw him near to God. So 30 plus years ago, a wise author and professor named Gary Thomas, himself a bit of a a contemplative, wrote a a book called Sacred Pathways. And it was a pretty popular book. Uh, And his thesis was that uh, too often followers of Jesus are told, often by preachers like me, (laughs) here's the one way you can get closer to God, right? Read your Bible. Usually read your Bible, pray. Read your Bible, something like that. Some combination. And his, his contribution was, look, Biblically, historically, there's always been multiple paths to kind of get closer to God. There's only one path through Jesus, but in terms of getting to know God better, there are these different ways you can do so. And it was very helpful to hear this and to read this as a young Christian. So I'm going to give you a few of those ways because it would be helpful for where I'm driving at this morning. So here are some ways you can get closer to God. I've sort of summarized for us here through uh, Gary Thomas's writing. One is contemplatives. We talked about that with David, right, in quiet and prayer. And maybe that's you. The way you get in touch with God is being just, just quiet. You sense God uh, speaking to you through, through, uh, through the quiet, through gentle nudgings, through uh, the, the sort of uh, still small voice of God. There are people who are sensates, like David was also, through sights and nature. You love being outside. You love smelling things, seeing things. Uh, praise God through mu- praises through music. That those kinds of things help you engage with God. Maybe you're a word person. You, you enjoy studying passages in Scripture, meditating on, on a line, or even one word in Scripture that helps you get, understand God better. Maybe you are a, a person of generosity. It's through contributing to others with gen- generous words of encouragement, uh, just, just being generous with your presence. Maybe it's through giving of your resources to others, and that helps draw you near to God. Maybe you're a person who serves. You like to do things for others, uh, do things for God's creation, do things... Uh, when maybe no one else even sees you doing them, doing things for the Lord Jesus, you're a person of service. My hope is that you see yourself in one or two 
of these pathways. When, I, when I've said one of, the two, one, one of them, you were like, yes, that's me. I, I'm a sensate or I, I love to serve people. Like you saw yourself and it resonated with you and that is very good. Well, for years, David connected with God through contemplation and he found pleasure in God through his senses. That's what I studied when I looked at David's life. After becoming king, consider David's two biggest downfalls. I want to tell you about them if you don't know his life. What's interesting about them is this. It was his pathway of sensory delight that led him to indulge in looking with delight from afar at another man's wife. Right? He's become king. He's gotten big. Like Good things have happened in his life. He looks at this woman, and he looks at her, and he looks at her, and he looks at her with such delight that he takes her for himself. And he kills her husband, all because of pleasure through his senses. His pathway of patient contemplation, remember I mentioned that earlier, was so overwhelmed, it caused him to continually wait on his adult children, wait on them and wait on them. When they sinned against each other, David didn't act. He waited. He waited. He overweighted. Sexual assault, murder, betrayal in his family all went unaddressed because he contemplated and he waited and he waited, resulting in the death of two sons, the emotional and psychological scarring of his daughter, and temporarily losing his kingdom, all because he waited. What's my point? It's this. Becoming king for David, beloved of God's people, getting God's great promise. David got all this momentum on his side, so he overdid or doubled down on what had always worked in his life, right? The blossom is full. The branches of the rose strayed too far from the roots. He kept going out and out and out and pushing to the point where it all fell apart. I know when momentum has shifted, the few times I feel like it's shifted to my side in life, that's when I overdo or double down on what so often worked. And so, uh, as a sensate, I've often indulged in sensations leading to more sin. I've become more confident in my authority in knowing and in using Scripture, because I'm a word person, leading me to sometimes go so far with that that I've been been harsh uh, at times at um, using God's Word and applying it to people's life. And David realized when he was getting far from roots, from his roots, and needed pruning, Seeking, feeling the, uh, the pleasure he got from music and seeing beauty in creation. He started seeking it for its own sake and not for God's sake. He recognizes, I got too far away. I got too far away from the roots. I needed pruning. And that's what we see here in this psalm. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you've connected with God in certain pathways and you start to depend more on the pathways than you do on God himself. And if that's the case, let me offer two suggestions to sample this week. And they're just that. They're suggestions. We don't see it here in the psalm. We're seeing it sort of from David's life and this pattern that he got into. Here are the two suggestions. Try a different path and pause a familiar one. I looked at that list of pathways this week up on the screen, and I sensed the Spirit nudging me. Ryan, you need to try generosity. Generosity is not a normal pathway for me to connect with God. It's not one of those typical ways... And he said, Ryan, the next few times you can be generous with your presence, with your words, with your, with, your, with your money, do it. It's a way that, so I'll depend on him more. I'll lean on him more. 
That makes sense. And sometimes I need to take a pause, to take a break from what normally works. Take a pause from my desk, from my journal. Take a pause from reading the Bible is the first thing in my life. So what I did was, in the morning, I, I walked outside and began to sing a song and sing instead. And sometimes I start, what happens is I start to depend on what's familiar, which can become a kind of addiction. Maybe you know what I'm talking about in life. You, you have a go-to thing that you, you go to again and again and again, and it, what it does is it takes you further and further away from the roots. It takes you further from God. It's a good thing to do a brief fast, a brief pause from anything on which we might depend other than God. As Richard Foster once said, fasting is feasting. Pausing on what's familiar makes us feast on, depend on God more. Let's pray. Fathers, we look at perspective on what helped him become more content in life. Make him humble and content on you alone. He doesn't tell us how he gets to that place, but his life does. His life tells us he overwards the paths. And when he oversought pleasure because of the, all the good stuff that was happening in his life, it led him to be far from you. And he needed some pruning. He needed to get back on seeking you for your sake. So I pray this week, Father, um, for some of us here this morning, we've overworn some paths. We've gone to something familiar, back to that well again and again. Father, and what's happening is we're no longer depending on God, we're depending on those things to give us life. And really, it's not giving us much life. Help us instead, Father, depend on you. And maybe one way we can do that is trying a familiar, something unfamiliar, trying a different pathway to you that we might lean on you more. We ask you give us wisdom, you give us help, because we want to find a tree of life to be truly content in you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.